This episode is brought to you by Trillium Aesthetics. Let's face it, the weird look is having a moment. When you look around at celebrities, strange looking eyes, overfilled lips, puffy cheeks, and faces that don't seem to move at all are common. You've probably started seeing this around you at the store or when you're out with your friends. Trillium Aesthetics is the place to go for non-surgical treatments that keep people wondering, did she have something done? What does she do to get such beautiful skin? The team at Trillium Aesthetics prides itself on results that whisper, but don't shout. If you're looking for non-surgical treatments to brighten up a dull winter complexion, add a little pout to your lips, or erase some pesky smile lines, call the team at Trillium Aesthetics. Schedule online on their Instagram page at Trillium underscore aesthetics, or visit the website trilliumaesthetics.com. Welcome to The Trillium Show, where we help you make the changes you want to see in your body, in your mind, and in your life. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Hall. So hey, everybody, we are here on location at Revitalize MD. You can tell we've got a different, very cool setting. I had the pleasure today of talking with Dr. Deb Durst and her nurse practitioner, Faraday Golombieski, about all things hormone replacement vaginal rejuvenation, peptides, a bunch of stuff I really didn't know about. I learned a ton. It was a great interview. So check it out. Hit the little bell button, subscribe, like, share it with your friends, and get ready for a great show. Hello, everyone. It's Dr. Durst, and welcome to RMD, All Things Aesthetics and Wellness podcast. And I have a special guest with me. I have Faraday, my co-host, and then we have a special guest with us today, Dr. Jason Hall. I'm going to let them both say a few words. Sure. Well, I, Dr. Durst, I appreciate you having me here today. Really looking forward to getting into all things hormones and aesthetics. So this will be fun. We're so glad to have you. Yeah, well, thank you. And I'm a regular on here, so you guys all know me, but we're really excited to have Dr. Hall today and talk about all the things with plastic surgery and hormones and wherever else the topics may take us. So we're going to start today's podcast topic will really be, you know, surgery and hormones and how that might tie together and work um, in combination, you know, to get you lasting results and, and better outcomes and all of the things. And so as we have questions, we'll just go back and forth. And, sure. Yeah, and, this will be fun. Yeah, it'll be fun. So we're going to start with like even, you know, I guess our patients being perimenopause and menopause age are frequently looking for surgical corrections of things that are um, happening. We do aesthetics, but obviously non-surgical options. And then, but they're of an age that they're going to actually need a little bit more at times. And so what do you think you see the most of in a perimenopause, menopause age in the office? That's a great question. So about two-thirds of my practice is women who are perimenopausal or menopausal. And in that age range, um, there really are all comers. We see a lot of breast and body surgery. Mm -hmm. So breast lifts, breast lifts with implants, abdominoplasty, um, and then facial surgery from eyebrows and eyelids to facelifts, neck lifts, you know, with COVID and Zoom, the neck has become a real mm -hmm. focus. Oh, yeah, they don't um, like seeing that. No, no, nobody does. <laughs> nobody likes the Zoom neck. Well, Zoom can be kind of brutal too, yeah. right? Without yeah. a filter of some sort. Yes, yeah. exactly. A ring light. Yeah. <laughs> a ring light plus. Yeah. Um, but so, so that is the, in that age range, a pretty it's much everything. top of the head to the bottom of the feet. It's everything. You know? And so that's a significant proportion though. Like not something that I knew necessarily, but mm -hmm. it's, it sounds like two thirds then mm -hmm. are of an age, an older age, because well, that gives us a lot of opportunity to talk about that age range and, and different things we can do to optimize them because we don't do a lot of younger patients. It's mainly as they start to notice some symptoms when they hit the 40. And we always say 40 to 55 is that perimenopause and perimenopause is no man's land. You know, yes. you don't really know what's going on. Um, your estrogen tends to be a little high, not really high, but looks high in comparison with progesterone and testosterone, which drop. And so 
they tend to be, you know, a little more emotional. They're starting to notice things that they might not have noticed before. They're looking in the mirror, seeing things and body composition changes. Yeah. yeah. Sleep starts to not be so good. Night sweats start to occur. So some of those hormonal changes, even mm-hmm. as early as 30 in some of our patients are yeah. starting to see those differences. Yeah. Out of the patients that you're seeing for surgery, about what percent do you see are on hormone therapy? Very, very few. Very actually. few. Okay. And this, so this is really, this is really exciting for me to be here and learn from the two of you because I do see, and we were talking before we got started, I do see a significant number of those perimenopausal and menopausal patients are on some sort of antidepressant, anti-anxiety mm-hmm. medication. And, you know, from your standpoint, where do those 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 hormone deficiency symptoms start? And what are kind of the most common things that you are seeing that you're treating? And so that's that's a great question because I didn't realize so many weren't on hormone replacement and but I think it isn't underserved. Like women and hormones, it's they don't know really where to go. And so it brings up the they've been to the gynecologist, they've been to the primary care physician. And basically it's an, you're aging. And so when you talk about medications, what's the first thing that happens when they go to the gynecologist or primary? They're not sleeping. So they get placed on sleep medicine. medications. They're yeah. anxious, anti-anxiety, and they're a little depressed. So antidepressants. So we're not deficient in antidepressants or anti-anxiety medicines. We're deficient in progesterone. And you know, progesterone is our feel-good hormone. Mm-hmm. And that's usually one of the first hormones that drop as we start going through perimenopause. Mm-hmm. So okay. a lot of times we can just replace progesterone if we're low and balance it with estrogen. And we mm-hmm. can see sleep improve, mood improve. Balancing that estrogen can make a huge difference in these women's lives. Yeah. And again, it's really that 40 to 55. So estrogen doesn't drop. It looks high comparison to, in comparison to progesterone and testosterone. And like Faraday said, progesterone is your feel-good hormone. So you can't sleep. Now, all of a sudden, you're pissed off about everything, you know, just like that. And so, <laughs> Little like, things set you, you off that never we, set you off no. before. And I think that to, meme the other day was hilarious. You're like, why is the floor on the damn floor? Yeah, like, yeah. All the little things make anything you mad. Makes you mad. So, like, you... you I, we frequently hear, you know, we're, we're obviously back and now all of a sudden I'm not laid back. So those are the most frequent things we see in perimenopause is I can't sleep. I'm anxious. You know, my mood is not the same and that can be testosterone or progesterone, but test drops too. And so that life force for men and for women is testosterone, but it's really like almost a gender bias for women because women mm-hmm. and testosterone is unheard of. There's no FDA approved treatments for women and testosterone, but you can still do that. You're using bioidentical, you know, mm-hmm. which is different. So we're using maybe pellets or injectables to do testosterone. But again, it brings us to improved healing with surgery. And then again, mood's better. They're sleeping better. Yeah. You know, the inflammation Energy's is going to be better. Less, or energy, all that. So. Which is huge when you're looking at body composition changes, right? If I have yeah. the energy after work to go to the gym and work out and I'm able to build muscle because my testosterone is optimized, mm-hmm. I'm going to have better composition overall. I'm going to have a better workout. I'm going to have better recovery, less inflammation. And I'm just going to feel better overall. You know, as in medicine in general, bleeding, like uterine bleeding is a big thing, fibroids. And so I worked at the ER for decades. And so people would come in in that perimenopause age and they have excessive bleeding, uterine bleeding. So they have ablations and hysterectomies and all of that endometriosis is more common. And really what they needed is progesterone optimization. You know, not necessarily a guarantee, but most of the time, if you have long enough period of time to oppose estrogen with progesterone, you might stop their bleeding. So we might have less surgical hysterectomies, fibroids, Mm -hmm. all of that. So. So it's interesting because we don't learn that in traditional medicine. No, you don't learn anything about hormones in Mm -hmm. traditional medicine. No, very, very, you, you learn the pathways, how they're made and Correct. how they help support pregnancy. And then that's pretty much it. Correct. Yeah. No, we don't learn anything. So you really have to branch off and learn just hormone replacement to be able to do it right. So I would prefer that people send them to somebody that has hormone replacement yeah a specialty in it because otherwise they get the wrong answers or the wrong approaches or, or they get half estrogen. treatments. Yeah. yeah. We see that a lot. Half treatment. Well, and again, hot flashes and, and night sweats don't equal estrogen loss, but y'all actually see them placed on estrogen first and they're already looking estrogen dominant. 
And so it makes it worse. So when you get the very emotional patient in that age range, it could be that too. So it's just interesting that we never learn a thing about it. It, it really is. And one of the things, you know, I came from a, from a general surgery background first. So before plastic surgery, went through the whole five-year torture that is oh, this yeah. general surgery yeah. residency. And so one of the things we start hearing about hormone replacement, one of the things that I immediately start thinking, and I know... Some of our colleagues in medicine start thinking about it. Probably, you probably guess guess is the is the breast cancer correlation, and you know what does hormone replacement in a perimenopausal woman do to their breast cancer risk? So help me with that one. All right, one that's interesting. This is very common. It gets brought up often. Well, and I think it goes back to like so the initial like big scare with that was like the World Health Health Initiative study, which was like 1993 to 2002. And it had like 16,000 women in it. And so with that, it was actually ended early when they did two, a combination therapy of estrogen and progestin. So to be clear, neither of those in the study were bioidentical, which is what we do now. But, you know, even doctors don't understand bioidentical versus synthetic, synthetic, even to this day. And so I've been doing this for 12 years and it has not changed in traditional medicine. But so that study, everyone was on Primera and Provera. You remember that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, everyone was. So Provera is a synthetic progestin that is not bioidentical. And Primera is an equine horse urine estrogen. So again, neither one of those are um, bioidentical. They're synthetic. So when they actually, they, they stopped it early for breast cancer cardiovascular risk and stroke. And in the study, people um, on hormone replacement actually had less in the way of colon cancer and osteoporosis, but it was the other concerns. So when they actually looked at that later on, it wasn't actually even the Premarin arm. It was the Premarin and Provera. So the progestin was actually the one that caused more issues. But again, now we're using bioidentical. And so you're using a different form And so it's not, it doesn't cause breast cancer, but it can cause a breast cancer, like an estrogen receptor positive breast cancer to grow if it's there. So screening mammograms are necessary once we reach menopause and are replacing estrogen. We're not to a point where we're actually using estrogen and breast cancer or even breast cancer treatment survivor patients. So we're not doing that at all. But just like estrogen... You would think that if estrogen caused it, everyone when they're pregnant and younger would get breast cancer, but it's the same thing. If they get it, it's genetic predisposition. So if they get it, they block estrogen production. And so we won't place somebody on estrogen if they have it. So we do require screening mammograms, but it doesn't cause. And it's kind of similar to men. Like everyone made it seem like testosterone caused prostate cancer. There's a good book out called testosterone for life. And Morgenthaler is a urologist from Harvard that wrote the book and basically has, you know, critically critically looked at all the studies that suggested it. And it doesn't cause prostate cancer either, but it can cause it to grow if it's there. And so, yes, again, I think common sense would tell us it's not the case, you know, because if estrogen caused breast cancer or if testosterone caused prostate cancer, men and women would have it at a very young age, but it always happens at an older age. So logically it made sense, but I think that huge study scared everyone. And at the time you were probably, I don't know where you were. I was in, I was in finishing medical school. Yeah. So, and and everyone was being taken off of hormones. And so 50% of people were taken off hormones with that. But then after they evaluated later on, it really was the progestin part. And now anything related to bioidentical has no correlation with breast cancer. That's, that's another question that I have is, you know, in doing some preparatory work for mm-hmm. this, is that the bioidentical designation is, is tossed around a lot. And it's not something that I, until I started reading about it, understood. And I think a lot of patients, certainly mm-hmm. if, if I start recommending if and when I start recommending patients mm-hmm. seeing somebody for hormone replacement, what does that bioidentical designation actually mean? So it's actually very interesting because it is yeah. like it's a term that I think it's even interchanged so much in medicine inappropriately. Mm-hmm. And I think it is a keyword that has become 
little popular, you know, like it's a fad, this bioidentical, but really when we look at bioidentical hormones, the body is recognizing it as, a, as its own and utilizing it as its own instead of seeing that synthetic arm. So it is a big difference between pharmaceutical companies making a chemical compound to try to mimic the body versus taking something natural like from yams. And having the same components, the body can actually see it and utilize it as if it is our own production. And again, so they're synthetic in that they're made and not obtained from someone. So I think that's one of the big confusing points because it's still made, but it's identical to the body's own hormone. So estradiol is the one we're replacing. So there's three estrogens, you know, estriol, estradiol, and, and estrons. Oh, estrons a very weak one. Nobody uses, but it's postmenopausal and weak. Estradiol is the one that's premenopausal and strong and preventative. So preventative for bone, brain, heart stuff, but it's E2, estradiol. It's identical to the estradiol that we produce in our body. So for simplicity terms, no matter what term is used, I think there's other things like bioactive, bioidentical, bioorganic, like there's all kinds of different terms, but we're measuring hormones before, we're replacing and we're measuring after. So a drug or Premarin, for instance, which was a synthetic, we could not test in the blood. So we can do an E2 level baseline treat and then do an E2 level and see where we're at. So it's identical to the E2 of the body. And progesterone bioidentical micronized is also identical to progesterone. So they don't add like a small chemical component that's close and mimics, but it's identical. So the testing that you're doing is very similar to, say, testing vitamin levels if you like vitamin D has been all over the news in the last couple of years, you you replace vitamin D with vi vitamin D3 with vitamin D3, and then you check vitamin D3 li later and Correct. see where you are. Correct. Like that's a perfect way exactly. to make it simple for people to understand because there's lots of terms used. And I think the synthetic component, the fact that it is synthetic so there are like stem cells or exosomes and things that are obtained from live births and used this is not. And so I think the fact that it's made from something confuses people, but it's identical. Mm. And you're right. It's just like vitamins. If they get vitamins at the vitamin store, they're identical, Yeah, you know, and they're made, but you can test them and get levels. Yes. And in my, I, I think I heard you, you, you tried to, I think you tried to slip something in there made from yams. So the, these are all, these are all plant-based. <laughs> A lot of times. For the, yeah. for the, for the most yeah. part. Okay. Absolutely. That's, that's totally cool. Yeah. 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 And I think that versus taking from Horses, Horse which, yeah. which should not yeah. be doing, yeah. right? Yeah. Correct. <laughs> and then I think that for patients, they very much understand we're testing, we're replacing, we're testing. Mm -hmm. You know, so we're going to know what your level is. There's lots of things thrown around and we won't get much into it, but like you can do salivary testing versus blood. But blood is very easily recognized by physicians. You can communicate with other physicians. And so salivary tends to be more of like either an academic term used or people that can't actually order, like providers that can't order blood, you right. know, testing. So they'll do salivary yeah. testing. So and, and like Dr. Gere said, it's harder when you're working in a community with multiple physicians, right? We want a good relationship with primary. We want a good relationship with endocrine, with the urologist. So blood serum is universal. Mm -hmm. Everybody understands it. Mm -hmm. yeah. The test in front of me, you're going to understand that test in front of you. The salivary testing is very complex sometimes. And you look at it and you're like, okay, the measurement is way different. The ranges are way different. So they're not as universally understood. Yeah. So it makes it a little bit harder when we're partnering in our Very, community. very hard. Interesting. Like even after 12 years of doing this, I don't <laughs> still, so, yeah. I'm still thinking about, I'm still, 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 still learning, the, learning yeah. the, the salivary uh, testing yeah. part of it. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's not a part of the the practice that that we do at no, all. So no, so it's it's good, like blood and communication, and again, you know, finding surgeons, urologists, GYN docs that are like not going to scare patients too. 
you know, because some of them don't understand, but it's better to not understand and refer on than to scare. So we have some primary care doctors that'll like, again, I thought maybe you were going to say clots Mm -hmm. because that's the second thing. And I'm sure that that comes up all the time. That was, that was with surgery. That was going to be my next question. I knew you were going there, (laughs) right? I knew it was like breast cancer or clot. I wasn't sure which one was coming first, but we knew they were both coming. You were expecting about Well, and with you, like with breast surgeries, this is actually a good question for us to know is is screening mammograms and like breast surgery or if they're on hormones because not many of your patients are on hormones Mm -hmm. but do you is a screening mammogram required for like a breast surgery it is if you are over 40 or are high risk i i tend to use the the current um breast society guidelines to to drive that so, and in, in we've had women, I had a lady, very nice lady was coming in for breast surgery about six months ago and hadn't been screened. She was in her mid forties mm-hmm. um, and we ended up finding a breast tumor on, okay. a, on a screening, asymptomatic mm-hmm. on a screening mammogram mm-hmm. and had to delay her surgery so that she could have her breast cancer treated. Okay. Um, and so it's with specializing in surgery, nobody really needs that mm-hmm. they want. Yes. Um, yeah. It's those, those kind of safety measures are really important that, you know, we'll, we can talk about clots and risk assessment for mm-hmm. that and, and anticoagulation, but all of that stuff is really important. So yeah. long, long answer to what should have been, what's a short question is, yeah, the, the screening mammogram for the over 40 or high risk population. So is, based on like pretty mm-hmm. standardized based on guidelines. Mm-hmm. Then, What about your patients that are on hormones? Do you have them hold their hormones or stop their hormones pre-surgery? That really, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a good answer for you because the number of patients who are on bioidentical hormones before surgery is so low. I have to actually go look up recommendations every time I see one. Okay. So it's a it's a very and I, I would love to get y'all's input on how to make that more, process yeah. more data driven and safe for those patients. What should we do? What's actually interesting because yeah. we we did a lot of look looking into that even prior to this podcast, kind of to see if there's like any good science studies that have solid recommendations, and there's not a lot out there. Mm-hmm. I will say. And like one said, like, I think 42% of bioidentical companies would recommend stopping that four weeks to three months before. And I think that's probably a common time frame that you've heard. Or four and to then, six weeks. Yeah, and then it was like a 24% a mm-hmm. of synthetic or OCPs, like birth control, mm-hmm. um, that same time frame, but only like 3% of surgeons doing it. Yeah. And that was about the most solid study we found But having said that, like estrogen is the hormone you're concerned with when it comes to clots. Progesterone and testosterone have nothing to do with it. You probably won't have many patients on testosterone because it's not commonly used with women. And I'm assuming that the practice is mainly women. Probably a small amount of men. About about 98% women. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, I was to guess that it was mainly. And so testosterone isn't used a ton with women. And we'll talk about that because it should be. It's awesome for yeah. healing purposes, but um, estrogen is the only one. So if anything is given orally, I'll just make it simple from my standpoint. And I couldn't find anything to back it up or not is oral estrogen goes to the liver, increases clotting factors, and increases your risk. So birth control, oral estrogen, estradiol, which is a manufactured brand that the primary doctors are more likely to use than us. And GYN. Yep. And we mm-hmm. never use oral ever because oral estrogen Mm -hmm. because it increases clotting and clotting factors so ours is all either transdermal or pellets and so i think if you're looking at bioidentical transdermal or pellets you don't need to stop it and if you're looking at oral estrogens then it sounds like there's some guidelines out there and it's like four weeks to three months Mm-hmm. But no one's really and, you routinely following them. And we were seeing a lot online where it was saying um, when we were looking, trying to find solid studies, that if it's transdermal estrogen, you don't have to stop it. Mm-hmm. So gel, spray, patch, no need, just oral. Mm-hmm. So it's like Dr. Durst said, it's very swayed. You know, it's yeah. kind of for every three studies, we could find one way. We could find three on the other hand as well. But there was across the board, micronized progesterone, no need to stop. No worry about any clotting. And then with testosterone, as long as we're watching hemoglobin hematocrit, 
and mm-hmm. blood levels are normalized, there's no Good reason to come off. Yeah, and, and with, with us, you know, for anybody who's actually having surgery, we use a clotting risk assessment before that's a standardized Gotcha. You know, okay. a standardized protocol with that assigns point values to every single one of those things. And, you know, oral contraception, oral hormone replacement is one of the line items okay. on there. And once you get to a certain point, it kind of tips you over into a risk category that you need IV or subcutaneous anticoagulation before surgery to prevent those clots because those clots are going to form in essentially on induction of anesthesia mm-hmm. um, is when you're going to get that clot started. Mm-hmm. And then other things, the, the way we provide anesthesia, the level of relaxation that the patient has, and then they're them laying around after surgery, all, mm-hmm. all of those things kind of affect that yes, clotting I, pathway. I love scoring <laughs> systems for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, kind of lays awesome. it out and, yeah. and it makes it very more objective. standard. Every, and, yeah, everybody yeah. can do it. Very everybody easy. can score it. Yeah, you just got to go down. But yeah. And I think that that makes sense that if oral, you know, estrogens or birth control are on there, that would make mm-hmm. sense completely. Especially with clotting factor history, family mm-hmm. history, if you've Correct. had a previous clot, things like that, that make you at high risk, yeah. of course, yeah. it makes sense to hold. And again, for us, even treating um, patients with clotting history, you know, it comes down to, because they come into us the same way, mm-hmm. we have a clotting history, I can't be on it, which isn't necessarily true, but it depends. If it's a DVT post-flight, flight, you know, you're on an airplane, then there's a risk factor. And if we didn't use oral, you could. So it just depends. So same thing you know, that risk stratification with it. But we could go on forever about hormones and surgery and effects. So I think what's interesting to me is to see if you have a difference or have noticed, observed a difference in women of different ages. And again, because most of the patients are women, um, not that I was, you know, just pointing out women, but in healing times after surgery, like do younger do better, do older um, tend to have more complications? Or just comorbidities. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting question. I actually just was just talking about this the other day that in cosmetic plastic surgery, age really isn't a factor as much as chronological age. So how, how many years, you know, for those of you, how many years old you are is less of a factor than physically how old you are. Mm-hmm. And when with what I do, most of that is soft tissue is just for example, when talking about breast surgery, is the breast tissue dense and firm like a youthful breast or has it been, Mm -hmm. has it atrophied and gotten replaced with fatty tissue, which is, you know, less Less pliability to it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, the the ligaments that support the breast stretch out with pregnancy and Mm -hmm. can those still support a breast? What's, is the skin thin with stretch marks or is it nice and thick and elastic? Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm interested to hear from you is how hormone replacement can help that. Can because help. certainly with thin tissue, atrophic breast tissue, with stretched out suspensory ligaments, that breast lift with implants isn't going to be as durable as it is if that tissue is really healthy. Supple. Yeah. yeah. When I think when it comes down to like hormone optimization, it's cell health. And so even what you're talking about is just how healthy is that cell. And so, you know, collagen elastin are like a huge component in a lot of skin aging or Mm -hmm. soft tissue aging because we're talking about both biologic age, skin aging. So if they're down, I always say like if they're going to lose 1% of collagen a year. So if some like that's a gross, you know, estimate. So if somebody comes in at 50 and they've done nothing to stimulate collagen, they're 50% down. And so it's easy to talk to them about ways to stimulate collagen elastin in addition to just like, I want Botox, I want fillers, because we can control movement, right? We can fill a little bit, but you're not going to get everything that you want in just filling and Botox. You can at 20, you know, 30, but not once we're older, right? And so I think that when we talk about effects of hormones on collagen production, there's lots of stuff there. Testosterone's got a huge 
you know, amount of literature on healing and even collagen production and tensile strength of collagen once it's there. Estrogen. Estrogen's a huge one. There was just an article in Dermatology Times talking about as estrogen starts to deplete, we start losing that collagen. We start having Mm -hmm. those histological changes in the skin. Mm -hmm. We see IGF-1 go down. I mean, it's pretty interesting that we can see that how much of a big effect estrogen can have in overall skin health and starting estrogen in women when they need versus waiting until they're 10 years postmenopausal, mm-hmm. starting when they're losing that estrogen, helping that skin stay supple, preventing those changes. Mm-hmm. So, and not just skin, right? Soft tissue is what you're talking exactly. about. So everybody thinks of skin. And so that's just a very superficial aspect of it. But fat perfusion is like a huge thing with estrogen. So just getting healthier fat, if there is such a thing, which there is, like there's a a, a level of subcutaneous fat that is needed. And again, beyond that, it becomes less of just a storage unit and more of an endocrine. So you get negative effects Mm -hmm. if you get too much. So obesity and body contouring and liposuction has great Mm -hmm. endocrine effects on the body too, because now you don't have fat producing bad things because you've taken some of the fat out. And then I think their mood also improves. So they're also motivated, but again, fat effects of estrogen matter too, because you're going to have healthier fat. Mm -hmm. So in the breast tissue, that's one thing. And then test is another one. Progesterone has a little bit, but less in the way of skin and soft tissue and muscle in healing and anti-inflammatory effects as estrogen and testosterone do. Help me out because I, you know, I do a lot of, you know, about half of my practice is facial surgery. Mm -hmm. And in that, a lot of patients come in and want to know how to improve their skin, lines and wrinkles, texture. And I end up recommending for a lot of those patients some form of laser resurfacing. Absolutely. It's great. There is, you know, there are, are kind of old reports about estrogen replacement and and skin healing. How can I help those patients? And have you seen patients who have gotten better results from resurfacing procedures that are on testosterone replacement versus patients who are not? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I always say like again. I mean, to me, it's all about like behind the scenes too. So yeah. like we're doing a lot of stuff to treat something we're seeing. So as we age, we all notice things in the mirror that we don't want to see, we didn't see before. And I think one thing leads to another. So you correct one, you see something different. I mean, women don't want to chase lines. We tell women that all the time. Do not chase the lines. Yeah. With (laughs) with filler. So, (laughs) you know, that doesn't make any sense, right? So we're just filling a line, but you're not getting at the underlying cause. So I think laser resurfacing, number one, is an awesome addition to everything else. So you can, that's a finishing, right? You're finishing, like you're making everything thicker, the entire skin surface thicker, depending on what laser you're using. But then behind the scenes is the cell health. So like, I think if you're perimenopause and you're menopausal, you're not going to get sustained results unless your cell is completely healthy. So your, your nutrition's good. Your sleep is good. You know, you're not dehydrated. Your biological (laughs) skin health is, is, is younger you know, so already you're going to get better results, but estrogen, like again, that glow of pregnancy, the vascular, you know, supply to the skin is huge. And so that's why we start to lose elasticity and collagen as we get older, because the estrogen, you know, and the blood flow to the skin is less, but testosterone has a huge effect on that too. You're supporting bone growth because facial aging, you know, more than us, and we would love to hear more about it the fat pads and bone, you know, they get less support, Mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons why you get all the sagging. And with decreased estrogen and testosterone, you lose bone. Yeah. So what do you notice with that? Like, and I think that our ladies would love to hear more of that, the change in the facial structures, they age related to, you know, bone and fat pads. Sure. Yeah. There have been, I talk about this almost every consultation that the face ages in a relatively predictable way. You know, we all experience the same changes over time. The interesting thing is that I've never really thought to link that to hormone fluctuations versus Mm -hmm. just time, but Mm -hmm. the two probably go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Most notably in women, you'd kind of mentioned bone aging. We all lose volume in our facial skeleton over time, which contributes to the hollow eyes, 
the under eye bags, Thinning jowling, yeah. both jowling in the front, loss of the kind of the angle mm-hmm. of your mandible, because the bony skeleton actually recedes around the eye sockets, recedes around the jaw. And people talk about their nose getting bigger over time. Mm. That's actually from the skeleton Recession. getting smaller. Yep. Is, mm-hmm. is the nose doesn't actually change. The skeleton gets smaller. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of, you know, we can't really do a whole lot about bone replacement. So we end up camouflaging that with either deep soft tissue fillers, which can offer modest improvement mm-hmm. in that early patient with those early signs mm-hmm. of aging, and then your own body fat, um, doing actually taking the fat, fat grafting, doing the fat grafting, taking fat with syringe liposuction, processing that out very similar to, you know, we had talked about stem cells earlier, mm-hmm. very similar to some of the processing that's done for that. And then re-injecting those into those areas. The an interesting thing about that is that there was some work that just came out of San Diego earlier this year that showed that there's a cutoff at about 55 years old. And if you're younger than 55, and this is these are patients that are primarily women, if you're younger than 55, you have about an 80 to 90 percent take. So 80 to 90% mm. of what we inject stays at a year and a half. If you're over 55, that number drops to 50% or less. Have you ever that's looked at PRP addition to like some of the fat? Cause I know that's mm-hmm. a new kind of area mm-hmm. that is intriguing. I've just touched on like a couple and a lot of times it's our patients bringing something to us. Mm-hmm. Like, cause we do PRP, but don't mm-hmm. do fat transfers. So yeah. They'll come to us and ask, and so just briefly looked at. Yeah, and it's something that has started to kind of catch on in plastic surgery world, but right now, looking at the data, the take is not astronomically different. You get a little bit more, but not. it's not the difference between 30% take and a 90%. You're not taking your 55-year-olds and now they're all responding. And now they're not all 80, 90%. It's not that. Unfortunately, (laughs) not yet. yet. You're not improving it to, yeah, 95 with that group. But anyhow, I think that it's interesting that you say, so what I'm hearing, again, obviously the bone decreases, you can't do anything about that. Mm -hmm. So you have skeleton shrinkage with time. Mm -hmm. And so everything starts to sag and the gravity is, you know, is pulling it down. You can't do anything about that, but fat you can. So you can take it from somewhere else Mm -hmm. because that's something that's also getting heavier with time moves to the lower face away from the upper face. And are you usually pairing that at the same time you're doing deep dermal? Are they two separate? Just out of curiosity, because we have patients that are, we're realistic with our patients. We have women sometimes that come in and they're like, I want this. And I'm like, well, that's a facelift. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to get that from filler. You're not going to get that from threads. You're not going to get that from laser resurfacing or microneedling. It's just not realistic. So they'll ask, you know, well, what does that look like? So out of curiosity, do you do them at the same time? Are you doing dermal fillers and also fat transfers that grafting or... It, with with that, I'm doing pretty much either or. Okay. Um, the, and the, the conversation in my office is, it, you know, we talk about, and I've talked about this on, on a podcast episode in the past, is that there are really three different areas of facial aging that you have to address to get a comprehensive treatment. You've got to address the skin. You've got to address the volume loss. And we got, I got kind of carried away with the bony part and forgot about the fat pads. Mm-hmm. Your facial, you've got a bunch of little facial fat compartments mm-hmm. that all lose, most of them lose volume over time. Some of them, kind of the ones right around your nasal labia crease, tend to grow, which we don't yes. want. But trying to refill some of those areas with either filler or fat is one of the pillars of facial aging that we try and reverse. You can do some of that with fillers, mm-hmm. but the the cost lines tend to cross fairly okay. soon. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're talking about eight, nine, ten syringes of filler mm-hmm. to hit all of these different areas versus a single session of fat grafting with the possibility of coming back at a year and adding a little bit more to select areas. And then that the third part of the, the kind of the facial aging triad is the is the structural part, kind of the part that gravity takes over mm-hmm. the bone, all of the muscles supporting your face, and that you know, facelift surgery, necklace surgery is really muscle tightening. 
there's, there's no, the skin kind of comes along for the ride. (laughs) Um, And so that part of it is, is where, and once you start seeing jowling, um, once you start seeing neck laxity, those are things that you may get a very, very slight improvement with revolumizing, but without looking alien, it's yeah. tough to fix that. <laughs> yes. And then we have those conversations a lot in this office too oh, yeah. about yeah. that, you know, we yeah. don't do overdone. Yeah. Well, and I think that again, filler gets a bad rap for that reason, because you're trying to do it beyond the point where you need to. Mm-hmm. And so they're not very realistic. And so we have that because people don't want filler at all, but you're like, well, you need like your point. Cause yeah. I almost look at it as like a firm fill and finish. Like, that firming is what you're talking about, like where they need left. Mm-hmm. And so you need more. You can fill and do some volume replacement. And then you can finish with all the, you know, Botox and laser resurfacing and all that. But again, it looks abnormal and gets a bad rap because people are overdoing it, trying to fix everything. And that's mm-hmm. impossible. And then you're going to distort movement. You're going to look abnormal. Alien is a good term. Alien is yeah. a really good yeah. term. Yeah. I That's like a that. good term. So yeah. You know the and the the you don't want to don't want to hit the uh, hit the injectable companies too hard, but they've developed some of these stronger fillers. Your your Voluma. Some of these some of these fillers that are really stiff. And they say, well, this will give you a lot of lift. If you just put it all up in here, mm-hmm. you can get rid of that jowl. And so you start seeing people that are whose faces are either totally square or they've got these very exaggerated cheekbones. Quite they're, impressive. Their yes. they're jowls, their jowls have gotten a little better, though. Well, yeah, because I mean, you've lifted the jowls a little better. Yeah. You've lifted everything. Yeah. You've like, lifted everything. Yeah. Well, but if you look at, so I've seen a couple, and I should have brought a filler on. But if you squeeze it out, like so for the G prime, you know, all of that, if I squeeze it onto my finger and press down, it's going to move, you know, so it's not like it's as firm as they try to make it seem, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to still make it move. It's not a correction. Yeah. 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 And I like using those, uh, not, not to, nice. not to throw those, those guys under the bus. Those, I think those stiffer fillers have a good, have mm-hmm. a role in facial rejuvenation. Absolutely. I like using them to contour the areas of bone loss mm-hmm. and then Absolutely. use some of those softer mm-hmm. fillers to go in and fill fat pads and and try and uh, like your I liked your firm fill and finish is is there if they start talking about you know lifting in some way then it's different but you can volume loss and you yeah. know and fill and you can finishing everyone needs yeah so we have those that laser yeah. resurfacing you were talking about yeah. everybody benefits from yeah. that yeah young adult and laser resurfacing is the key to that. Completely, 100%. And again, it depends on which one, and it depends on downtime and what they want, but still, you got to have laser resurfacing as well. Oh, I, I couldn't agree. It, it, yeah. it, has, it has become, over time, has become one of my favorite mm-hmm. facial mm-hmm. rejuvenation mm-hmm. Uh, modalities. It's just finding the person that is, that the patient, that matching the patient to the result, to the downtime. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And we have that again, we don't, we just don't talk about resurfacing enough. And I love lasers for that reason, because you can do so much with them and you still need that because that's your finishing, Mm -hmm. like your finishing touches. You still don't want wrinkles and you want thick skin and you want it to look healthy and vibrant. And so you tell our patients you should be doing something every month, every month, every month. So we do memberships for laser resurfacing for our patients and that they love. They get to come in once a month and they've got a variety of things they can choose from and it makes a huge difference overall. What do you like? What's your favorite? For laser resurfacing? Oh, right now mine's yeah. the triple glow, which is where we'll dermaplane, do a hydrofacial, and then we use the Lutronic um, Ultra Glow just over. So it does a little bit of everything. Cleans out the pores. It makes me not fuzzy. And then just that light few top layers of skin off. I just... Huge, huge, huge difference in my skin since I've been doing that. So I think that that's a good like maintenance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a good maintenance Pores. one, but you're not going to really yeah. treat. And I look at them as different. So you're yeah. treating or you're just maintaining or mm-hmm. preventing. Yeah. And so that's a prevention one. So on a monthly basis, it's almost this prevention. Like you need to do something once a month. But so when it comes to like treatment in here, we do one of two mainly. And we don't do, we have 
we don't have a CO2, but we have an erbium that can go superficial or deep. So depending mm-hmm. on their downtime, it also does like a 4D, what we call 4D non-surgical facelift mm-hmm. because it's, we go into the mouth with it. It's a different type of laser. Oh, wow. And Fatona is the name of the laser, which is mm-hmm. like one of my favorites. It's a beast um, of a machine. A but you can go in the mouth and do deep dermal where, you know, all therapy before you can yeah. get as deep. So at least you can thicken everything. So you can go in the mouth, you know, so you're getting the nasal labial folds around the mouth. And wow. then you come to the outside for two other steps for a mid and upper dermis and then resurfacing. And that resurfacing is an erbium that usually is ablative, but you can actually do it in non-ablative mode or you can take it really deep with downtime. Not probably quite the results that you would get with CO2, but we could, but none of our patients want. They're not coming to us because they are looking for downtime, really. Mm-hmm. So I think if they're looking for surgery or they're looking for you know, something more aggressive, like a one time, maybe a two time, but usually one time because CO2, is that one of your favorites? So or- I, I have a, I have an erbium YAG. So okay. it, it is interesting because we have an attachment that does the a combination fractional ablative and deeper non-ablative, but then most of the device is ablative, okay, either okay. fractional or full field. Okay. I want to get back to what you were saying about the the photon that was in the mouth is kind of cool. That so that's a non-ablative. So it's very layer. interesting. So what you're saying too, even with those final steps. So Fatona has two wavelengths. So it's a 2940 RPM, okay. and then it's a 1064 okay. NDAG. And mm-hmm. so the first one is erbium, but it's mm-hmm. an erbium with a long pulse wave. So like with, or with the long wavelength. And mm-hmm. so with that, you can get deep, but not ablative. So you can heat, so you can go in the mm-hmm. mouth and obviously erbium is attracted to water. So you can basically laser inside the mouth and get deeper to thicken the deep dermal. The outside next two steps are actually in DEI. And so you get a little deeper, a little more superficial with almost something similar to your frac, but in DEI. Mm-hmm. targets pigment. Yeah. And so you really don't want to do that with men, but then you come to the last step and it's erbium again. So you can do, you know, your deeper non-ablative, mm-hmm. you can do fractional full, full field if you wanted to. So it depends on their downtime. So yeah. you can go deep and, but the nice thing about this one is like, you can dial it deeper or m- more superficial in any of the modes, but it does like 170 other treatments. So mm-hmm. we can do vaginal rejuvenation. We do like a 4V vaginal facelift, like with the laser. So similar to the face, but on mm-hmm. the vagina, on the outside for, so with some pretty amazing results for somebody, oh, absolutely. Just, for somebody that isn't like a surgical <laughs> yeah. candidate, yeah. you know, but didn't even think about making it prettier, but they can make it prettier. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's that, that's actually you, you you jumped me there on that yeah. one because I was going to ask you about that because we were when we were walking through earlier you had talked about the vaginal rejuvenation laser and that's not something that I do and we've I, I think we've all seen an uptick in cosmetic oh, general procedures in the last couple of years you know labiaplasty has become a really popular surgical procedure but the non-surgical vaginal rejuvenation is not something that. I have a whole lot of familiarity with other than the devices are out there. So educate me on what that is. It is unbelievable. When these ladies came back last year from Texas and were like, we can do 4D on the vagina. I was like, what? I'm like, no way. (laughs) And our first patient that jumped on the table, we were blown away. Just one treatment, the tightening external that we saw was just remarkable. Mm -hmm. She came back seven, eight months later and there was no change. No laxity. She was just as firm as she was when she left after that first treatment. And usually we're doing about three of them Mm because we want to maintain. But it has, it is unbelievable the changes that we're seeing. We had a patient recently that came in that has done labiaplasty before and is still seeing some changes now a few years Mm -hmm. later. And we're trying to target some of those areas and we're being able to correct that laxity and just, it's blown me away. So most of them are like non-surgical candidates for the outside. So they're not even really thinking about it necessarily. And and we didn't even think about it. Like, honestly, I did ER for decades. I tell this story all the time. Pelvic exams, nonstop, right? Never looked at a vagina and thought that needs to be prettier. I just thought (laughs) that needs to be like, they're all different. They're all different. You know, that's it. And so the first one we did last year, I was shocked at the results. She was pacing in front of my door, waiting for me to come out just to show me the picture. Yeah. So it's pretty amazing. (laughs) We'll show you that. But then 
the inside though, so those are all non-surgical and I think we're bringing that to, to light just because people are more aware. So if we're talking internal vaginal rejuvenation, then we're naturally just talking to them about external, but they're not anyone that's ever been told they needed a labioplasty. I mean, those patients that come to you for labioplasty are probably kind of told and directed to come in because the gynecologist or someone else it's not usually the patients, is it, that has noticed a big Or they have like pinching, right? Yeah. Just excessive skin. Yeah. So we're it, not it, seeing those patients. Yeah, it's it's the yoga pants, tight swimsuits, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and that Instagram and the internet, not a lot, uh, surprisingly not a lot of physician referrals for that. It's, okay. a, it's a lot of self-referral. Well, I wonder if you just saw that article right. about the yoga pants and one physician had like a crazy increase in well, labioplasty yeah. thanks to yeah, La- double surgical to the yoga pants. Yeah. In 2022, they did yeah. that. So yeah, that's interesting. And I figured maybe if anything, like somebody had told them like gyne- gynecology wise, you know, this is surgical if they were bothered by it. But yeah, I think that with Instagram and social media, clearly women are more aware of what they look like versus what others. And again, if pornography has become more pronounced pronounced in a younger generation, then it's going to only increase, right? Yeah. But I think women are sitting around and talking a lot more about this kind of stuff too. Like my mom wasn't talking to her girlfriends about what her vagina looked like, or if she's ever done any treatment or thought about it, you know, that I think it's changing as we are all sitting around, we're talking about it. There's more just openness about it. It's not it's as taboo a, to talk about sexual these different things. Girl. Like it's yeah. done, but it's going to, it's one without borders this time. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know? It has no borders. Yeah. It's open. So I think that's the big issue is I think that they're noticing others. And then under 18, I think it was like a 5% of labioplasties done, mm-hmm. which is crazy. 18. Is that yeah, it's, it's, reasonable? I, I, I'm seeing older teenagers. I, I can't say that I've seen somebody under 18 yet, okay. but certainly early college age, 19, 20, 21. Okay. I'm learning a ton about genital cosmetic <laughs> surgery today. Yeah, this is this is awesome. But, vaginal aesthetics, yeah. like we call it vaginal rejuvenation. Vaginal vagina. Just, just so you know. Yeah. I love it. Wow. So that was a really awesome episode. I feel like I learned a ton. Um, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that just to get all of the details out of that episode. Our conversation went well longer than this. So we're going to cut it short here. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will be part two of this show, where we will get into some really interesting topics. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to The Trillium Show. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at jhallmd.com. Be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to connect with us on social media, you can find us at jhallmd on Instagram and Twitter and Dr. Hall Plastic Surgery on Facebook. Remember, be the change you wish to see in the world.